welcome once again to the Gales all over the globe who are tuning in as they do every week to the Global Gale podcast. My name is Philip O'Connor coming to you from my little studio here in Stockholm, Sweden and they're sweeping the streets outside which means that they're probably thinking there's not going to be uh, that much more snow this winter but that may not bother you if you're in Sydney. Jeez, you could be roasting down there. Um, thanks very much to everybody who got in touch We about last week's episode. We had Tony Bass, who is one of the most influential figures in uh, European Gaelic games. And we had Tony on to talk about uh, his life in Maastricht in the Netherlands. And of course, I think he said he visited some 80 countries around the world. Tony's been all over the place. But we had a good long chat there about Gaelic games abroad and what he has done. And uh, it, was, it was great to get to talk to him. I've known Tony for many years because I've been involved in the GAA here in Europe for a long time as well. So um, it was good. And it's amazing to um, to see where you get new listeners from. right? So I'm really hoping that some of you who tuned in last week for the first time are back for the second time this week. And that you'll be back for a third time next week. Because uh, we're talking to people, Irish people and people of uh, Irish heritage all over the world about the great things that they're getting up to. Uh, none more so than a fascinating interview that's coming up for you in, uh, in a very, very, very brief, you know. We have to do a little bit of housekeeping first, lads, because um, there's always things happening in the community. I saw there, uh, just before sitting down, turning on the microphone, that uh, Tourism Ireland are launching a new strategy, a new tourism strategy in Dublin and Belfast this week. So it'll be interesting to see what they have in store to entice us all back for our summer holidays or our winter holidays, which are, geez, most of us will be going back there anyway. I saw, I must actually get the two lads from Las Vegas on again, uh, Dave Brown and Dave Rooney. I see that they're on a different sort of a, a holiday over there. They, along with Derek Warfield and the Young Wolf Tones, have been taking part in a cruise somewhere around uh, the, the warm waters off the American coast there. So they've done a sort of an Irish-themed cruise over there. And if you happen to be on that cruise and you're listening, please do get get in touch i'd love to see what the whole thing was about but it seems there was loads of irish music on a huge cruise ship somewhere there around the americas for a week or so and the boys would have been playing um if you've heard any of my other podcasts you will know that uh, dave brown and dave rooney uh, dave brown's a lot of group but i've known him since he's a teenager uh, a three-time guinness world record breaker playing the guitar he played the guitar in uh, the temple bar pub in, in dublin for like 114 hours once so it was like a fascinating achievement and then they did a huge long gig at the re-raw irish pub in Las Vegas and then uh, yeah I can't remember what the third one was oh they did uh, 50 gigs in 50 American states in something like 35 days which was like the fastest tour of America ever done it was absolutely wild altogether and there's a film out there, I'm not sure if you've seen it, if you're a long-time listener to my podcast, I'm sure you've seen it, but if you haven't, it's called This Is My Home, An Irish Story. The band is called The Black Donnellys, and it's well worth watching, especially in the run-up to St. Patrick's Day, lads, when we'll all be going out, hopefully, and having a drink and listening to some music. And this takes you sort of... Um, behind the scenes of the people who, who bring you the Irish music uh, in the bars of everywhere from Moscow and Stockholm to, to Philadelphia and to Chicago and to Las Vegas. The two lads are very, very experienced and they're also absolutely hilarious. And at times when you see the kind of gigs that they had to do to break that record and the kind of things that they had to go through, it's just, it's an amazing piece of work. And I know they're, they're working on several other films as well. But it's well worth checking out uh, just to see and the whole the ambition of the whole thing and everything else like that was just mad altogether. So uh, that was well worth it. Anyhow, 
Uh, before we get into the interview, I haven't explained who it is yet, right? So we'll keep you going there because I want you to listen all the way to the end of this, right? This is a community-supported podcast. It's only here because you're here. And you can support it by donating the price of a cup of coffee every month. Now, for that, you'll get at least four of these Global Gale podcasts a month. You'll get the weekly Irish and Sweden podcast. You'll get the Arrowman and Stockholm podcast, which covers politics and media and that kind of thing. And you'll get one from a series called Premier Swedes, which talks to all the Swedish players, or the idea is to eventually talk to all the Swedish players who have ever played in England's Premier League Football League. So all of that for five euros a month, there or thereabouts, five, six euros a month. So if you can support that, the more people we have doing it, the more these things will be able to do, the more chance we're going to be able to meet in person because we'll be able to travel, we'll be able to take these shows on the road as we're hoping to do at the end of February to the Irish Creative Collective in London. Uh, we want to go to the World Cup down in Australia, New Zealand when the Irish girls will be playing at the finals of a major championship for the first time. But to do that, I need people like you in the community to get behind me right now if you can't do that that's fine because the podcast will always be free but if you can't do that please share the podcast if you hear something interesting on it instead of just going on to the next thing instead of going on to the stand with Eamon Dunphy or Blind Boy or or Jay's now it's time for the second captains take a minute and share the podcast on your LinkedIn or your Facebook or your Twitter or your TikTok. Uh, recommend it to a family member. Fire it into the local GEA Club's WhatsApp group down in Melbourne and say, oh, I hadn't listened to this. You might think this is a bit of crack, right? Because all of that helps me. And Jesus, don't just do it once, lads. If it's worth sharing once, it's worth sharing every week. So if you can help me to build a bigger audience, so then maybe we can find people who are prepared to pay and who can afford to do it so that we can keep it free for everybody. But those who can afford to contribute do. Do you see what I'm getting at there? Anyway, now that that's out of the way, let us get to this week's interview. On the show this week with me is Alan Moore. Now, Alan is an Irishman who lives in Moscow, Russia, where he works for a university, and he also presents the biggest sports show uh, in Russia on Capital FM, I think it's called. And indeed, he's invited me on there once or twice to talk about various different things, from MMA and boxing to soccer to all sorts of stuff. Uh, great guy altogether, and I've been wanting to talk to him for a little while, because he's in a kind of a unique situation, and that there are not that many Irish uh, journalists that I know or Irish people that I know living in Moscow and there's even fewer who are prepared to talk about the whole thing because it can be quite a difficult subject because as you can imagine Alan is coming at things you know he's consuming different media he's hearing different things he's living in a different situation so some of the opinions that he would have would be quite different to what are sort of you know mainstream accepted opinions if you will in terms of the discourse around the war in Russia and Ukraine and that but there's an awful lot more as you all well know when you're living around the world there's an awful lot more to just living in a place and oh you know this is what's in the news you know so he's been over there for a good while um he has a son there he has a job there he runs the moscow shamrocks uh i think he plays soccer he's up to all sorts over there so i wanted to check in with him and we ended up having a good long chat now i think it went on much longer than the two of us might have expected but i'm going to present the whole thing to you here uh, just to give you an idea of how things are perceived on the ground in Moscow and what people are talking about and what Russian people are talking about. And Alan is able to give us great insight into that because he's there and because he knows the people there and he's been there for so long and his in-laws are not only Russian but there's so, some of his in-laws who have their roots in Ukraine as well, which makes it all the more fascinating. So without further ado, Alan Moore of the Moscow Shamrocks and of Capital FM and a university administrator over there, take it away. <laughs> Alan Moore, I suppose the obvious question to start with is how was life in Moscow this time of the year? 
Um, not as dull as it would be now up in the Nordic countries. <laughs> uh, we, we we did see some there last week, um, or earlier this week, I should say. The only problem was felt that it was uh, minus twenty six outside, with the wind chill factor bringing it down to minus thirty five. So uh, it was nice to no mo- no mosquitoes in any way. Not this time of year, no. I think they're they're all wearing fur coats and hiding indoors somewhere, you know. If they've any sense. Uh, listen, one of the things I want to talk to you about was like to get somebody on to talk about what it's like to be living in Russia right now and what brought you over there. But before we do that, you had a little bit of an odyssey there sort of over the Christmas period, right? So I believe you had to leave Russia in order to renew your visa to go back there to work and that kind of thing. So, But there's no direct flights out of Russia at the moment. Is that right? Yeah, everything stopped obviously right away uh, at well, the, the end of February very, very quickly. So all the tickets that we had to fly home uh, were done and dusted. Uh, and that was a bit of a pity because we, I had planned to get back to Ireland. I hadn't been back in Ireland since the 1st of March 2020. I landed back and we did a bang, COVID hit and everything was shut down. I was going to be back in April that year. But anyway, um, to try and get home, there was the option to fly down to Istanbul or to Turkey, I should say, and go through there. Apart from the massive expense it was costing just for me alone around around 1,800 uh, euros to around 2,000 euros uh, plus a night stay either side, uh, either in Ankara or in Istanbul. And so there was myself and my son, Timur, 13. We were going to go home together. So it, just price-wise, it was going to just destroy any money we had for Christmas shopping at home. Mm. The other option was to go up to the Baltics or, you know, to the Baltic Sea more than anything else. Uh, so we decided to go through Kaliningrad, fly to Kaliningrad, then go by bus. We overnighted in Kaliningrad, then went by bus down to Gdansk. Uh, because of heavy snow, we crossed the pole and the snow just bucketed down. And um, so our flight was delayed and so on. So we said, uh, we, 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 or sorry, we missed our flight, I should say. So anyway, we decided to go down to Warsaw where I could get my visa renewed there. But because of issues, the fact that I was meant to do it in Dublin, I couldn't do it there. So I said, I'll chance my arm down in Budapest. And then we got a train down from Warsaw to Budapest. Uh, tried there, still no luck. So we ended up having to fly back to Ireland anyway, via Bristol. And we flew back, uh, it was it 10th, the 10th of December, when the, the snow all started falling across uh, the UK and Ireland. Mm. And of course, then there was heavy fog in London. So there was all flights delayed and missed. So we had planned to have a night and, and uh, an evening in or sort of a, a morning in Bristol, but uh, it ended up four hours sleeping on benches in Bristol Airport to get home. Oh, God. Uh, the way back was an awful lot better to a degree. We f- we flew from Dublin to Rovaniemi. Uh, I'm saying that really wrong. Uh, up Rovaniemi, where's it? That's Finland somewhere, isn't it? Oh, that's there Lankan. That's where Santa lives. That's exactly it. That Santa's village. And so we flew there on the uh, the North Pole Express. Um, oh and it, it was, I mean, the amount of people of all ages, of all nationalities flying from Ireland, it was beautiful to see, Philip. I, re- I really enjoyed it. Flying up to, to Lapland, uh, we, we dropped our bags off then at the bus station um, and then headed up to see Santa's village. Tim wasn't feeling well, he was extremely tired, uh, as well as everything else. And we, we got into the village, it was amazing. The amount of Chinese people there was just stunning, absolutely stunning. And they were so bought into it and they were loving it. And they were like, oh, we're traveling now. We'll go down to Finland or Helsinki and then we'll go to Russia, we'll see Petersburg. And they were doing a whole tour. And I was thinking, fair play to them. Um, It was very cold, but for for us, it wasn't that bad. 
Uh, we got the overnight train down to Helsinki from Grovanimi. Uh, yeah, you said it better than I did. Uh, and we wrote all that, that idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I ended up meeting a friend of mine who I hadn't met uh, since seeing her off at uh, Dunleary Pier. She was going back to, or herself and another friend of ours were going back to Hollyhead to go down to Europe 30 years ago in oh, summer God. 1992. Um, and she, you just bumped into her on the on the night train to Helsinki, did you? No, when we arranged to meet, we said like, because we were in contact oh. the last few years thanks to social media. And yeah. I said, Tara, like, going to be in Finland, um, you know, I, in, in, in uh, December, uh, or sorry, in a few days, we said, yeah. So she had the morning off work and we walked around, spoke, and it was great. It was basically like we had only seen each other yesterday. So it was kind of funny to see photos of myself at 18 years of age. So that was kind of odd. Um, and that was great. And then we, we, we the night train down, by the way, was an absolute, oh, gorgeous. It was amazing. It was really, really good at the train coming down uh, from to Helsinki. And then we ended up in the evening, we got a bus to St. Petersburg, which was delayed as we were crossing the border. Uh, there was just some problems with on both sides to finish on the, the Russian side. Mm. We reached uh, our train platform at 12 minutes past 12 um, uh, on the, well, it would have been the morning of the 23rd. And uh, the train literally pulled away as we were walking up the platform. Oh, so we had to overnight in, in St. Pete's and then get a train down the next day to Moscow, uh, which was great, which was was actually, was it was it was fine. There was a lovely hotel in the St. Petersburg train station, mm. all the smart hotel. That was brilliant. Um, cheap and clean, very, very nice for the two of us. Uh, and then we were down by Sapsan and they upgraded us because of, you know, missing our train to hop. They upgraded us on, on the Sapsan into business class. And Philip, I swear to God, I was embarrassed. Now, if your daughter was saying this, you'd probably want to throw it out the window. I was embarrassed because he was saying it quite loudly. Tim started saying, said, this is so good. Like, you know, we're not sitting in there with all the peasants. This is really nice. So I'm like, no, don't, don't call people peasants. Please like, don't say not, that. Please don't say that. No, not out loud. Like, <laughs> not when there's people around us. But it, it meant just the fact that it was, it was, it was the, the train was great going there. But it, it brought the end to uh, a really nice trip home that was yeah. um, longer than it should have been. And it, it, meant an, it meant an awful lot for the two of us because we spent like three weeks on the road and yeah. uh, it was nice. Would I do it again in a hurry? No, no. But uh, it was it was great. And it, it just, you know, even to get home now, uh, if you're not flying through Turkey, which which does worryingly mean that you're flying by a war zone. Um, mm. if, if you don't fly there, then it's it's, you know, a couple of days on the road going home yeah. anyway. You know, so, uh, you know, it's 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 opened up the world of travel, but not in a good way. Yeah, I suppose. Well, I mean, it is one thing for your son to experience traveling in that way, because when your friend Sarah left Ireland in 1992 at that time, that was the way things were done. Right? We we couldn't afford. I remember it was more expensive for me to fly to Sweden in 1996 than what it is in 2023. You know, so th that world of air travel and Ryanair, that kind of thing didn't exist. And if you wanted to go anywhere, you had to travel. And people who went to university, went into railing and, you know, they buy that cheap ticket and be able to travel around for a month or whatever. So it did, did your son enjoy it? Or, you know, I know you mentioned he was a bit worn out by the end of it there, but did he enjoy it in general, Alan? Ah, he did, Philip. He did. He really listened. He, I, I asked him the other day, walking back from uh, his rugby trainer, walking back up and said, "What are the, the, the three best things you liked for the whole trip?" And he, he was, he was naming them off. Like he, I brought him to Budapest in in two thousand nineteen for his birthday when he was turning uh, ten. Mm. Uh, so the two of us went down, and he really enjoyed it. So he liked it. He, he really enjoyed the trip. He liked the train rides. Um, 
I can't say I did know that the, the second train ride as the one from uh, Warsaw to Budapest was a bit tougher, but it was still nice. It was not my train, but still very, very nice. Mm. Uh, he really enjoyed it. And, uh, you know, it, it kind of gave him an extra bit of, um, I can say maturity, because at different times I, ha- I, I sort of, purposely sat back and said tim if you go up now and order the stuff here and like get the food mm. for example if we're in kfc and in, 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 in a big shop center in warsaw i said if you go get the, the food and he said what do you understand me he said that ah, don't worry we'll, we'll fix it out yeah. same in budapest for example so he had to get over that kind of barrier that we would have had as kids as well when you go away because the parents are looking after him. yeah um, and the great thing is in all fairness in all these countries people were speaking english so it, it made it so much easier as well so it was mm. a, it was a world away from 30 years ago and uh, no and this would say about you know 1992 travel um if you go to to england for example it was mostly you know boat and bus you know yeah. you get the ferry and then you get on the bus and you go along or by train so it, it's completely different now but uh, he he enjoyed it I mean, he, he didn't enjoy the flights um but he enjoyed the trains and the buses and you know, uh, while I was sitting as a nervous wreck crossing borders, he was just happy looking at the window. <laughs> so I didn't mind a lot to take pictures at the window as well at border crossings. Yeah, yeah, that, that'll happen. As well. I mean, it's amazing how things change, all right, because like, when especially, you know, those of us who live in the EU or who live in a place where, or maybe we don't travel that often. So, you know, you reach one border control point in Australia, but you have a visa in your residency or grand, like, you know, but it's not a guarantee. I know up on the Finnish border there, when this whole situation was kicking off, or recently there, they, they closed the border briefly and, you know, there's all sorts of checks and that kind of thing, you know, so it does make traveling an awful lot more difficult. Oh, yeah. But if we zoom out a little bit, Alan, I mean, we all know about the situation that's been going on since February last year there. Have you noticed any change? You know, because you've been in Russia for a long time, right? Yeah. Uh, so have you noticed, what's what's daily life like there at the moment, would you say? It, it It's a tough one to, to, to quantify because, um, as you know, like same as yourself, you're involved in Gaelic games in, in Europe. Mm. Um, immediately when things kicked off, and there were reports which I was unaware of until I was sent links to look at them. I was getting messages from brilliant, lovely people in Gaelic Games Europe and mm. sending me messages saying, like, are you okay? You've got food, you know, do you need clothes? Is there... yeah. which which surprised me because I, I was unaware. I, look, when it kicked off, uh, I'll talk about it in a second, but basically, um, I wasn't aware of what really what was happening outside. Um, I was aware it was happening here because I, it was my job to look after the kids I was meant to manage uh, under two and a half thousand of them. So I did that. And at the same time, I was dealing with um, people within the GA club, especially, and other, um, what we call them, they say, expats who, who yeah. are living here, who are contacting me and saying, look, what, what do we do? Are you leaving? You know, it was just this echo chamber, this absolute mm-hmm. awful echo chamber of dominoes, I think is the best way to call it. Um, and People were, 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 were panicking, but again, like I was getting messages from people, really extremely intelligent, really good meaning people, well meaning people who were saying, Do you need food, clothes? Have you got enough bottled water? And mm. I was like, Well, what's, what's this about? And I was seeing the links, they're sending like stories on could be CNN or could be even on RTE, but like food shortages and so on. And I, I purposely went down to a couple of supermarkets, took pictures of the, the beer shelves. Mm. Now, the beer shells have changed, but like they, they took pictures and the, and the, the fruit and veggies said, listen, relax. See, like Russia, um, honestly, Philip, and I've spoken to this before, so I'm not afraid to get myself into trouble. 
Russia has this psychological issue that when a seismic shock happens, whether it be financial, whether it be um, some sort of geopolitical shock, whether it be being exposed as doping, whether it's a war, they suddenly freeze. People, uh, they freeze and everything shuts down. Um, and when, because uh, I was the director of the international office of, well, I was top five universities in Russia. And there, so I woke up and I, 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 I six something in the morning, I looked at my phone, I was like, oh Christ, like, you know, I looked at, I looked at Twitter and I said, mm-hmm. oh no, they've done it, they've done it, the idiots have done it, they've done it. Because the night before, that, a few hours before, I've been speaking with uh, an Asian friend of ours, uh, um, Tony from from the, uh, oh God, I'm just like this family name now, and I've and shamed it. I've uh, seen from Glasnevin, from uh, Glasnevin, Fingless, Tony. Oh, Tony, and, Tony Groves. That's it, Tony Groves. And the two of us were, were talking, and, rec- and we recorded the, the talk, and I was saying, no way, they're going to send in the peacekeepers. This has been going on for eight years. Mm. They're going to calm themselves down. It'll, it'll, and, and we agreed on it. And we looked at it logically and said, no, you can't. Then I wake up and bang. And I, thank God Tony has never published our conversation because <laughs> <laughs> you would never ask us for better advice afterwards. We were logical about it, but of course, it's a whole illogical situation, or at least a different logic to what we understood. But yeah, yeah. that morning waking up, I messaged my colleagues and said, in our office, and I said, okay, everyone in my office, 8.30 this morning, um, prepare plans for what we're going to do, how we're going to help the kids. Because we two and a half thousand full-time students um, studying from uh, the language faculty which prepares them to enter into the mainstream of the university um, um, we, and we was like 87 different nationalities so we've a lot we'd love to deal with uh, and also um, the other issue was we had well actually the correct total was 23 but it was actually uh, 17 students from France Germany uh, Hungary and Italy who were with us like exchange students some of them had just arrived that week um so you can imagine and, and also then i was getting a call, i got a call very early on before going to work i was in work just before seven before eight i always mix it up because i was so like days that day oh, days but like operating um i got a call from a, a contact a friend in the ukrainian embassy uh his security officer said listen i need a list of all your students from ukraine uh who are there and any of your students who are in Ukraine over on like a work experience or who are there, you know, working on joint projects, he, he said, get them out. I said, okay. And I said, um, what about your students? He said, just delay giving me the, the, the list. Don't give it to me just yet. Mm. By later on that morning, the, the Ukrainian embassy was always already closing down. He told me under no circumstances, send a list. Don't send it. Now they asked for it. He, he officially asked for it. We said, don't send it. Um, so that's what they face. So we face face them the the French embassy, German embassy, phone them hysterically. Kids have to get out right away. If you shut down, God knows what's going to happen. They're going to be killed. Mm. The kids that weekend, I, I called them all to my office after meeting my colleagues. Colleagues came in, and I made them wake up and react. I said, "We can't just sleepwalk and close our eyes and wait up the Monday. This mm. this has to happen now." Uh, my immediate superior, uh, the, the deputy head of the university didn't answer his phone for four days you know um and was that just asked, an example of, of of russia sort of freezing in in a moment of yeah, crisis adam that's it. It, it it's a psychological thing and i've spoken to psychologists and psycho like analysts here um about this phenomenon here and that's what happens they just literally freeze the people who then benefit or make the money or 
do well for themselves and the ones who don't. They've either been conditioned or they just react. They have something. For me, it was like I, I couldn't afford to react because it's my job. I couldn't afford to think about getting out of Russia because I couldn't. I had, I had to look after them. I had my son as well. And I was like, what the heck is going on? And I had to literally, you know, work. So all the way. And, and at the same time, you know, like with Moscow Shamrocks, there was, there was panic in there. So people were calling for there, like, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? And I, all I kept saying was, look, this isn't my first rodeo. I've been through this before. Uh, I was in Saudi Arabia. I arrived on the Thursday. The following Tuesday was September 11th. Mm. We were employed by the Bin Laden. Family, basically, we're living in the Bin Laden compound. It was a huge housing complex compound in Jeddah. Um, and people were worried then, especially when then a year later, uh, we were celebrating St. Patrick's Day and also the, the, the war kicked off in Iraq. You know, people were again. It was like people. What are you going to do? And as soon as this kind of echo chamber starts to take over, mm. um, suddenly, I said the dominoes start to fall. And people. One person says, "I'm going to go." They all go, um, and it's it's panic. And I, and I just couldn't afford to panic. I had to just say, "Okay, it, there's nothing I can do about this. It's a complete mess. It should never happen. Um, I just have to get on with it." And and that's basically what what I did. It was just kind of. Um, I, I don't want to say like duty took over, but I think it was just kind of a ration, like, kind of I just rationalized and said, look, there's nothing I could do to change this. Um, if I run away, what happens then? Mm. You know, I have to then look for work. I have to, you know, I if I go if I if I step off the plane or boat in Dublin um, with my son in tow, uh, and I have to ask his mom to, to let him take me out. Take <laughs> exactly. Yeah. First of all, but if I land back in Dublin. There's no like I have to go down to the help board office and try to get set up with emergency payments. So you know, so it did. You know, I have to rely on my family to help me out for the first few days and so on. So it's there was no good solution. I didn't think it at the time. I just was like, that was after the fact. At the time, I was thinking, take care of the kids, keep everyone calm, get through this, get through the weekend, and please God, let them stop. That's all. That's all I was thinking. Because you actually had responsibility for two and a half thousand university students, not just Russian people, but from from all over the place. And I mean, yeah. the whole point of having you there is that in a situation like this, you won't walk away. You won't <laughs> leave them high and dry because, you know, we all know, I mean, young people today, they often get a terrible rap for, oh, you know, they're lazy and TikTok and all this, bullshit. but they are very capable and they are very yes. resourceful and that kind of thing. But at the same time, they're, they haven't seen the things that you or I or many people listening to this podcast have seen and they do need help. And there are times when we all need help. And that's why we have GAA clubs like the, the Moscow that's Shamrocks it. and the Stockholm Gales and these things are there for it, you know? Um, <clears throat> What's what's the Irish community there like? Because obviously you're very involved in it through the Moscow Shamrocks and that. Is it a very big community? Is it a very tight community? Is it a very active community that you have there on? Um, it was always medium size, not as big as uh, as say EU countries, like like definitely not as big as it would be in Stockholm or or Helsinki or Berlin, for example. Uh, it was, it's it's grown smaller, um, progressively smaller over the years when. The 2008 financial crisis really hit home. A lot of people pulled back. Then they were starting to rebuild again, but still not up to pre-2008 numbers. In 2014, then the the currency, the valuation, the financial crisis hit Russia. An awful lot of people. I, I was down in Vronge at the time. I remember pulled back up um, for Christmas, I think it was, 
or no, New Year, excuse me, New Year holidays came up. I was going to uh, fly down to Hungary and I came up to, to meet some friends. And five of the guys that I would have played Aussie rules with and a couple of guys who were who ended up being founder members of the, the Moscow Shamrocks were gone or were leaving because basically their the companies were just saying, okay, good luck. And if they had, uh, one of the guys was married to a Russian, they had two kids, three kids, excuse me, and they were in Russia for eight years. And his company literally just said, no, that's it, good luck. So he, he was given a month to find a new job, but when there's a financial crisis on, there's no jobs going. Mm. Uh, he and it was and it, he was working in the finance industry, so he wasn't needed anymore. Um, luckily, he found a job down in Munich. But anyway, uh, the 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 community is small enough; it's it's relatively diverse. There 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 was always a kind of a clique in it as well, where they this I can't say an, an old, it's not an older generation. That's that's complete nonsense. It's a kind of a group who say well, who were found themselves felt themselves to be very very important. And sort of, you know, dictating things, and, you know, they would run, like they run things. The GAA kind of leveled that quite a bit, mm. uh, where in order to compete in competitions, you know, or, you know, you had to have uh, democracy. And the GAA, in all fairness, is very good at democracy. It's, oh, yeah. It, you know, it could be a managed democracy, we could say, but it's mm. also very democratic. And a lot of people, especially abroad, no GAA background. They're not even Irish. They're not even related to Irish. They don't might not even have a, a, an Irish boyfriend or girlfriend or husband or wife, but they get involved, throw themselves into it, and simply through effort and the, the spirit of volunteerism that you and I, you know, got into it for with and for suddenly they rise up. So I think that the the now it's it's grown that we have um, the second club started two over two years ago. Now just before, it was actually just before the pandemic mm. uh, hit out in Ulyanovsk. Uh, which is the furthest east club in uh, in Europe. Uh, they're called Simbir's Celts. And then another one then started with Moscow called the Seamus Heels. And that was a group who used to be Moscow Shamrocks. And then they, you know, they kind of, they, they sort of went, it was like mainly Irish and guys who worked together. And they said, oh, let's have a, a, a different club in a different part of the city. So was it was a great. famous GAA split in Moscow, was there? Exactly, yeah. It was funny. I mean, it, it happens often. And, and, and like working with GGE, Get Games Europe, I sort of heard all these stories and then I was away for a little while as in like I, I was away for a week or so oh no yeah it was it was during the pandemic or something so things had closed down and suddenly then this it's like oh there, there's a new club going to form I was like I thought they were our members like no no they're not like oh there you go and it's the most play, thing ever in fairness like you know it you, is it you is turn I mean, back for one second there's another club after sprouting out of it like that's it and I mean it, it's it, it's funny because like one of the things that they they weren't happy about the Shamrocks is the fact that we had uh, our, our, our the man well the, the committee was very international. So we'd like you know British, Irish, Russian, mm. um, French, all, and so it, basically what happens in Europe, uh, where fifty percent of the clubs have no Irish in them, like in Europe, or maybe a little bit less, but it's it's, it's edged up towards that. Mm. Uh, so that was that was that was kind of funny, and they they said no no we need to have like stronger ties at the embassy and so on. I was like, okay, no, it's fair enough. But uh no, they they've done it their own way. They, they they've they've suffered a little bit because a lot of the they were mainly teachers who were involved in the club, but they've all a lot a lot of lads have left. You know, the contracts were open. They just they weren't renewed and some of them didn't want to renew them because of the war and the whole so they all kind of they 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 left. So they they're struggling a wee bit. But, you know, we we've been sort of 
encouraging them and helping them to say, oh, look, we, we had the Russian Championship last summer mm-hmm. down in Olianosk, and it was great. Unfortunately, the the, the, the they didn't have enough players available. So it was just, you know, it, it was tough for them. But it's great to have more clubs, you know, and, uh, you know, it has, it has spice to the meetings as well. So when we when we finally meet them in an official match, I think it'll be, it'll be a bit of crack. I'd say to be a few sparks flying, but that happens all right because it is. We... I'm standing goals. I'm standing goals. You, you, move, this the thing. you tend to move in infield, you know. So if you start a corner forward, first you move into full forward, and then you go oh, a little bit of midfield, then centre back, and, and this guy, then you eventually wind up in goal, and that's then it. that's it. And then you wind up chairperson again, and they won't let you on the field at all, you know. <laughs> that's and it. That's it. You have a sort of a slightly different perspective, Alan, because what <clears> we're sitting here consuming, and I noticed this when I was at the World Cup in, in, in Qatar, right? It's very easy to have a sort of, you know, a very Western perspective i don't know if you've heard me tell this story before but i was sitting listening to a danish press conference about the one love armband right you remember this uh this great yes, effort that was yeah. going to be made for equality which was dropped and the danes were very upset about this and they held a press conference and in the middle of that press conference came the call to prayer in doha that day and that summed up for me you know how difficult it is how there's always sort of two sides to every story regardless of which one you agree with or which one you yourself hold dear there's always two sides to it and now i know that you're in contact with me you're in contact with a lot of people back in Ireland, in contact with a lot of people in European Gaelic games and that kind of thing. Um, what's your perspective or what's what are you hearing in Russia on the ground? Are people there behind what's happening? Are they, as they can often be in that situation, are they indifferent? Are they just going, OK, well, how is this going to affect me? Do you see a big difference between the way the Western world is covering this and what you're hearing in Russia? Uh, first, I look, that, that, that story with the Call the Bears is brilliant. And, and uh, I think it emphasises everything that is great about sport where you know that goes on the background and there is that kind of like mix uh you know of of religions and, and backgrounds that can get involved in sport and, and that's what i thought with the pity with qatar was that the focus was so much on social issues or not even social issues or just political issues and this, I, I think what happened, if you don't mind me interrupting yeah. you, we, we ended up talking so much about how things should be and not how things are and how we can yeah. get them there. And that was what, you know, the, like the, the parts of the debate, that, like everybody's gone, oh, the, you know, this, uh, uh, I can't remember the name, this is the Kafala system is wrong. And actually, yeah, well, okay. So, <laughs> you know, yeah. how are you going to change that at the same time as, you know, people are working in Amazon warehouses and peeing in plastic bottles, you know? And this is the, <laughs> the part of the discussion that I miss because you can stand there and, you know, point out the splinter in your neighbor's eye without seeing the log in your own. And that, again, I'm not in one in any sense trying to justify anything that happened or is happening no. there at all. But we have to be adult <clears> about it and look at it. And, you know, that was why it interested me. You know, you being on the ground there in Russia, maybe you might yeah. see things slightly differently. Well, look, I... I, I... I think a lot of time when people are pointing that stuff out, they don't want a discussion, they don't want a debate, they don't want to hear something coming back. They have to tell you what you should be doing right. And as you said, it's not about talking about the situation on the ground, it's about where you should be and what you should be doing because it, it, where I'm from, it's like this, you should be doing the same thing. Yeah. And with the Kavala system, I, and I always, every single time, I preface, especially in sports, speaking of sports or broadcasting, and say that I worked for two years in Saudi Arabia. When I arrived a day later, I had to get my passport in. When I wanted to leave the country, I had to tell them in advance, get the, an exit stamp or an exit visa, I forget exactly what it was, to leave the country. Mm. So, you know, I, I understood what I, was do, what I was doing. Now, it's different, of course, with some of the core forces who I've, you know, I've, I'm very close with the Nepalese embassy here, for example, and different mm. embassies here from working with um, higher education. 
um, and speaking with the different people who, whose whose citizens were were in Qatar, for example, and they say, well, it, it's an unfortunate thing, and many of the debts which what was left out completely of the reporting was that mining deaths was related were related to drugs or alcohol, alcohol, which was a huge problem. And but that goes to something else. It's like the conditions that they were kept and that the the society the the group that they were being brought into, like these hard like we can think of the Irish builders in England, for example, or America, mm-hmm. they got their they got their check, they cashed it behind a bar and they drank themselves to death. Like, you know, so there is that awful, awful societal situation, especially for men. But anyway, that's beside the point. With Russia, at the very start, I, and, and luckily they were put down in print, and I said that at the very, very start, was the, the biggest problem, because I started then looking, once kind of I got the kids, like two and a half thousand kids from 87 countries, kind of taken care of or had a system, I'd set up a, an international um, uh, student council, which then became members of the student union of the, mm-hmm. the university. And that network alone, they like a mix of, all different nationalities, and they really worked hard to keep everyone calm. Um, then I started like some of them were coming back to me and said like that they, they felt uh, very upset by some of the reporting being done in on Russia. And when you have even you know was it yes yes I think it was it the, the Ukrainian Minister for Defense saying that like you know, that Ukraine is the last stand of the civilized world against the hordes and so on. Mm. You're not going to win friends like that, especially if you then rebroadcast on BBC. And when then they re, when you're circulating then statements from people who, in the heat of battle or heat of moment, are saying stuff that's really really rotten, like calling Russians orcs and beasts and animals and so on. Mm. Like, it, we wouldn't we wouldn't do that about if we we're reporting on something in Africa. We would be very very careful with it. But it just was out there, and I'm going a lot of Russians. Contrary to what was being put about, it was like, oh, the younger generation are different, so on. They're not. And the older generation also will read BBC in Russian or the Telegram channels, mm. for example. They'll, they'll, they have access. Pe- people like, you know, stuff like here in Russia, Wi Fi is, is, is everywhere. What do my phones would like log on for free? People are very connected. And that, and I said at the meeting, said, as soon as all the stuff being, spoken how it's been spoken this absolute hatred that's been building up for years it's been there not just since 2014 but there longer um that kind of coverage of russia gets their backs up mm. and in me and i said you're going to turn people towards Putin, and they did and even mm. with this mobilization people complained but then when they saw the the coverage of it outside yeah anybody who had a little inkling of i'm not sure about this i don't agree with mobilizing and so on um when they started reporting on it Mm. They were like, wait, hold on. Every year we have a, a quarter of a million young lads finish their army training. Yeah. Surely we can call up some of them. And the whole... So when they saw the very biased reporting outside, a lot of Russians, they, they got their backs up. And they were also then felt that as soon as all Russian media was blocked from broadcasting inside of, of Russia, mm. um, or no, I can't say outside of Russia, into the uh, Europe and North America and Australia. That really bothered a lot of people here because they're like, why isn't our voice being heard? And then they then they started, it was very easy for the manipulators and the PR con artists and the grifters here mm. to start saying, uh, you know, what you expect. And it was very, very marked when the son of the um, late uh, Zhirinovsky 
said very, very clearly in, in an address. Oh, sorry, in an address, speech on TV, in a TV show. And I knew it, it was coming and it was bubbling, bubbling. And he just turned around and said, said, all of you who wanted to be, you know, you thought you were Europeans. You're going on your holidays to France, to Italy. And you thought that the people there respected you and liked you. This is what how they see you. This is how they see us in the West. Yeah. Wake up. And it was very real. And it's it's only been getting worse. And it's kind of, um, mm. you know, and, and when is reporting of the, the, the refugees? And we we had the Russian championship there uh, was late June or July in Ulyansk. We met, and, and I'd seen them since 2014, refugees from uh, Donbass, people who were like clean out of homes and then they had to like, like run into the Russian health sector and then travel up into Russia. Mm. Russia took in a huge amount, but again, it, it was ignored and the, the pressures put on Russia. And at the same time, uh, there were people here still making a lot of money from that as well, mm. where they were basically taking, put them into hotels, charging exorbitant rates, and the state were happy to put the money into them. Just that, well, you know, we leave them as they are. So I think that the, the coverage um, has really hurt people here. And a lot of people have been damaged, and especially when people who left, the people who just say left across the border. I I, I know of now of five people uh, well, she's six, but what? But but she's going to go abroad again. Five people who left the country, two right at the start, and three around time mobilization. They've all come back, mainly because when they went outside, they were stigmatized. And yeah. you know, and and I can say just from experience, I was up for a, a similar position at university in the UK. Got through all the. Uh, this was an unexpected date. They, they'd actually. Punched me and I said, okay, fair enough. Um, and I, I, I said, great, I went through all the interview process and to the very, very end, uh, they said, you know, they were made up fair enough. And they said, look, we would like to do it, but we've been kind of told by our media people that the visuals might not be very good. Yeah. And I said, why? Well, you know, Russia. So I said, okay. So the, so when, when that all comes in, like you kind of feel there's something wrong and, um, you know, for all the stupidity that goes on with Russia today, for example, people have a brain, they can see through it. They can yeah. see through propaganda. Uh, but being blocked from seeing anything or everything, it is it, very, very odd. And, and, and um, But on the ground in general, nothing has changed. McDonald's have changed their name, but they still get paid. Uh, Coca-Cola have just rebranded. Uh, they're still they're still here. Um, in my kitchen, I'm I'm looking at uh, uh, <laughs> a chocolate bar from from Switzerland. Um, so Toblerone is still sold here. Tim was only loves having a Toblerone every so often. Yeah, nothing has really changed. Um, different fashion brands you have have pulled out almost fully, but they still you can get them through delivery. Uh, the Prices have risen slightly. That is that is true. And even the, the price of um, let's just say the fast food or drinks they they have gone up slightly. Not a huge amount, but they have. It's been noticeable. Uh, and you know, petrol has gone up a tiny little bit. Uh, everything else is still pretty much the same, and uh, nothing has really changed. And there is there's a mix of uh, the, the people you mentioned. All the people who were like either I think everybody, everybody apart from some odd individuals and that's a tiny tiny minority everybody was 
is and will be against the wall. Mm. Like Russians are, are very patriotic. Russians love their 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 country, but they also there is still an awful memory of the Second World War mm. uh, that is there with them, and they you know this fear this fear of being invaded. So they 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 nobody wants the war. You speak with people and they might start off saying, and I'll just tell it with my son's uh, granny and granddad, and his granddad served in Afghanistan, uh, and would always be anti-war. When he was rational, Tim himself would have arguments, and Tim would say, you know, oh, it's wrong, we're doing this, and Russia's bad, and he'd say, look, you have to read more to the situation, and that's it. He'll, he'll try to defend it, but then as soon as we're sitting having a beer together with them in, a, in an Irish pub in Moscow, and he, he turned around and said, said, I just want to all to stop. He said, I fought in Afghanistan mm-hmm. so that team wouldn't have to go fight somewhere else. And, you know, there is that feeling. And every family here is affected in some way or other. Every family here uh, has relatives in, in, in Ukraine. You know, every family has. And that's why I said, like, that the overwhelming majority, I'm talking up 90%, mm. they just want the war to end, you know? And, um, but it just doesn't look like, like people now are, are 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 tired of it, but they also have, fortunately, unfortunately, rallied behind the the presidential administration mm. because suddenly the things that he said was happening has been shown, mm. and then you know, and of course, Russian media, Russian state media, will play it up, and that's the worst possible thing because then again, it's another echo chamber. And then say, oh, look, they found Nazis. Oh, look, you won with her swastika tattoo. She's been brought and she meets with the Pope and so on. Mm. It's like, oh, God, like, you know, there's so many own goals. And Russia, two things. One, Russia will never do itself any favors. They'll, you know, no matter how, like, <laughs> when Meldonium happened, and I, I've been writing about it for years, you know, so I've been arguing with like Dopens and Scourge in Russia and talking about it before it all blew up after like you know in 2011 kind of raiding about it with, with on an irish radio show about how just it's, it's it's rotten and you know russia has a big problem but that's how they have to compete that's how it works but it's not right and so on uh when the Mildonian thing came out one russian football club were still buying Meldonium. they were caught buying Meldonium. there was People still getting caught using Meldonium. Not not charcoal, but I mean, mm. people still being caught using this stuff. Like we know, a, a Carlo County footballer was caught using Meldonium for doping, basically. Yeah, yeah. It, but in Russia, it's like look, like you do yourselves no favors, and same with everything. And this is kind of, you know, they, they do stupid. Like Russia's like a sort of a a less English speaking America. They're probably English spoken at the same level as in America. Uh, in terms of numbers, <laughs> I'm not talking about quality, just numbers. Um, but we, we, there's this kind of this kind of cowboy stance, and they are frontiers people. Mm. Uh, and when they say, like you know, the the, the Surovik and the, the general who was in charge, it was kind of the deputy uh, of, of, of what's going on in Ukraine, and they've been reports of like Russia's out of rockets, Russia has no more missiles, Russia's run out, they've finished her out. And then they fire 110. It just sort of goes like, yeah, that's amazing. That's like a, a, a New Year miracle that we found all these rockets under the, the carpet or up the back of the, the couch. That plays well the whole audience. Yeah. 
outside is kind of people looking kind of going, oh, you're a scumbag. Yeah. But it's kind of like, well, these people are all, you know, very intelligent idiots. And they know, like, they, they, they think it's very, very good. And they do these things for PR. But Russia does itself, it does no, itself no favours so often. And then the, the second part as well is that they, they are very bad at getting their message out. Mm. Um, and that's nothing to do, nothing to do with uh, media control or bad news agencies or mainstream media in Western countries. That's just simply Russia being unable to get the message out. Mm. And um, they've done it over and over and over again. So like with those two, I mean, it's a, it, it, it's terrible. And, and it's just it's made this whole mess drag on, like, you know, well, it's fascinating because if you look at one of the things that happened in Qatar there was uh, when a migrant worker died and uh, whoever was the head of the Supreme Committee for delivering the tournament came out and said, well, death is a part of life. And you're going, oh, Jesus, like, you know, the inability to formulate something that, you know, something that is in some way acceptable, you know, to a receptive yeah. audience, you know. And so often you'll see those things and you go, because I remember I actually met Lavrov at a thing um, in uh, in Stockholm when he was meeting Liz Truss, who is by far the least intelligent person I've ever met. <coughs> And, and you're just thinking, like in one way, they really want to get their message across, and another way, they don't actually care what people think of them, you know. And they'll often give this short-term domestic gain away rather than look at the long term, you know. And I think this is a failure of sort of over the long term. The whole situation is a failure of the long term, going back, you know, 20, 30, 40 years, <clears throat> almost since the fall of the Berlin Wall. But yep. to, to move it on, Alan, what's the future? Where do you see this going, both for the, the, the city that you call your home, the country that you call your home, but also for you personally? Um, well, I guess I'll start, I'll start for myself personally, it's, it's always tougher to say. Well, I'll, I'll start off just in terms of Russia. When it all started, I kept saying, and, and I spoke with uh, was on Today FM and Courtney, and I kept saying, don't other Russians be careful, like, be careful with the language, because this whole mess is a lot deeper and bigger than any of you understand or reporting. Mm. Um, and we have to be so careful with this, because if you lose Russia, it's going to be hard to get it back, because it you know, confidence-wise, Russia is, is is brittle in many ways, mm. um, and and I just don't like don't other Russia, don't speak with Russians like the Irish have spoken about in the eighties or mm. the seventies and the sixties, and that's what that's what really got in my wick, um, you know, because it was like you can't talk with people of like this, like they're human beings, mm. and they're human beings on both sides, and 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 I equally said this. And openly said as well, like, when the Russians are talking, like, they're all, like, like not Putin's self, but, like, other people, were, well, even the administration was saying, they're all Nazis in Ukraine. And like, don't, no, don't use the word Nazis. They start saying genocide. Don't say genocide. That, like, using these emotive words, they can be thrown back at you, and they were. And it made a mess. So in terms of with the long-term relationship, uh, back in May, I wrote an article about Russia, the potential to join Asia. And I did a survey, I did research into it, and I spoke with different, the different federations in Asia that had contacts in it. They were all very much favourable. Russia, there before New Year, uh, the Russian Football Union were about to vote on it. They didn't vote on it, they decided, no, they'll, they'll stick with UEFA for the moment. Hmm. But when I was on air, when the, the, the Sunday after it kicked off, and I was like, you know, 
well, it's the logical thing to, to suspend Russia. They're not suspended, but they have to, to freeze them, to not allow the teams and clubs play, mm-hmm. uh, teams and clubs play, because we don't know what's going to happen. So there is that thing of like, this is going to take a long time to go away for Russia. Uh, I would not, I I would, if I was UEFA, if I was a Russian football union who are very logical about it, I would not want any of our teams or clubs to play in a, that we'll say a NATO country, for example. Mm, yeah. Um, because in, in certain NATO countries, no, that's, that's I'm, I'm being very wrong with that. In certain NATO countries, because there will be protests there will be idiots from the Russian side who react. There will be, or who want to make a statement, go there pre-planning to make a statement. There'll be mm-hmm. idiots from, who want to get their name in the paper to make a big point, who feel not in their lives, they're going to, to do something. It, it could end up getting somebody killed. It could end up getting somebody injured. Mm-hmm. It would just make it a complete utter mess. You know, this is not, this is not post-Heisel, uh, English teams being, you know, banned from, from Europe. This is this is worse. This is far far worse because the rhetoric that was ramped up is not going to go away for a while. Yeah, a, a big issue for the world. And yeah, I said this actually was with a Warford radio station. Uh, the biggest problem when I saw the reporting, when I actually looked up, looked my head up, lift my head and started looking at the reporting of it, I said, "Guys, you've got this all wrong." Because if I went to meet the RTE, I went to meet to BBC as well. Uh, I'm very friendly with people here in Moscow from different international news organizations, news organizations, um, with agencies as well, and from CNN to Sky, and um, actually, chance is a good friend of mine who's a reporter, uh, correspondent here, and he tried to tone down the reporting. With, and I spoke with him, and I spoke with Irish reporters. Said, "Look, you're you're talk- like the way they're talking about this is the wrong. It's 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 the last war. Mm. It's not the current thing." Five, six, seven years ago, five years ago, four years, no, five years ago, the sanctions would have absolutely crippled Russia, mm. Had would have had people in the streets, would have had, you know, basically they they, they, they would, the government would have talked about 10 times and double checked before they even did something like this. But it's a mm. different situation where they had prepared for this. They, they had prepared for an eventual war because it's been building up, um, for a long time, and, I, and, I'll, and I'll say this: this is the truth. No, no one has, no one's spoken, said this anywhere. Uh, that I know I haven't heard it anywhere. But the whole thing with when Russia tries to get across the point that this has been going on since two thousand and fourteen. Mm. That's 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 another nonsense. It's a lie. It's been going on for an awful longer. And I know of two people. One, one good friend of mine who Ukrainian had served in the Ukraine military. 2007, he'd taken over to Canada to train the troops there because Yushchenko, the former um, president of, of Ukraine, <clears throat> had sent across officers who spoke enough English to go over and train over there. And then he was taken back in 2008 for uh, in Texas for extra training because of his speciality. Hmm. It was more taken over. And when he was there, and, and, and I've heard it from two individual sources, I'm from an American uh, people and from an American uh former serving officer as well, who's very much anti-Russia, but uh, when they were shown then the, the book of what their enemies um, are using, what weapons and machines and so on, on the front of it was a Russian uh, armored personnel character, APC. Mm. So this has been on for a long time, and whether it's to push NATO in, whether it's to start a war, I don't know, but there are vested interests in Ukraine who were pushing it, 
And those vested interests aren't just in Ukraine, they're also in Russia. Mm-hmm. So there's these people who are balancing it all out, who are making a mess. And so it goes back an awful long time. And there are people here who, as I said, the very small minority, very, very, very small minority, who think war is a good thing mm-hmm. and are happy with it and they're making money off it. Now, their kids won't be serving on the front line. Exactly. Never. You know, their kids are going to be dying in ditches. And the same in Ukraine, where Yushchenko's daughter's in in France, is in Courchevel, mm-hmm. with Russian oligarchs' kids. Like it's This is on uh, Lisa Yushchenko. They're, they're there drinking champagne and dancing. Mm-hmm. You know? And they're, they're never going to be affected. And no. this is the horrible thing. So it's going to take a long time for this to ease because a lot of families have had real issues have split mm. uh, over this like mother half her family have direct like you know grandmother born in ukraine and when it kicked off like her sister fell out badly with her dad mm. uh simply because she he he he, he saw it one way and said this isn't just today he said, I've got friends in Ukraine, I'm, con- I'm in contact with them. Yeah. Uh, he works in nuclear physics and he said, I'm, I'm in contact with them, but this isn't just today. And of course, his daughter's like, no, Russia's bad, they should be doing this, it's horrible, there should be no war. Yeah. yeah. So it, it's kind of, so families have split. So for Russia, um, I think now there were times where there would have been, I mean, after about two, two three days, Zelensky who I was, and I don't know why, but I still think he's he's a very good person. I still think there's an awful lot of good in him. That's the decency in him. That, uh, and, this, and and there's, there's, a, there's a personal voice in this as well, I know. Mm. Uh, I, I had believed that he was going to do great things for Ukraine. Um, and he, I, still believe, I still want to believe, but I still believe he, he, he still can. There was a, a moment when he, at the very, very start, when he said, okay, stop. And this is this is in, in the news. He said about three, four days. Okay, let's stop, and we don't go to NATO. We're not going to EU. Let's stop and talk. Mm. And it suddenly changed, and the fighting now has got more vicious, and the reporting of it has become more vicious on all sides. And I, so, I, I I fear for what's going to happen next. There, nothing to do with nuclear, but just the fact that. Both sides are so entrenched uh, in every sense, and you know we 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 have not seen the worst of this yet. I had hoped I had hoped that if it, if it, if they all saw sense last summer mm. and spoke like human beings, it would be better. But it it, it didn't happen. It led to mobilization, and yet as soon as Putin recognized before the war, recognized the. It was on, on the Monday he recognized the countries or decided the, the, that they were kind of you know, breakaway regions. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, no, 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 no. And then, of course, that was the kind of the in Russia, you can see it coming. That's the last warning. Mm. Like, if you, if, you, if you don't cop on, now we're going to get you. And they <laughs> yeah. did it. And there is this America's the same. America, like, these big states do the same thing. They, they'll give a warning. Mm. And if you, if you think, I don't care. I'll, I'll do it anyway. Then you're in trouble, and it's it, it's just an awful shame. And there's so much, you know, there's so much people waiting, both Russian and non-Russian and Ukrainian, waiting to rush in to Ukraine to rebuild 
to make the money off that money be flowing in. Mm. But Ukraine is a country, uh, you know, no, like no, like no, no one, you know. And I, I heard this. Oh, uh, you know, this would have all ended if Russia had just turned off. I've heard this from outside Russia and, and inside Russia. If they just turn off the gas, mm. Russia is still sending gas into Ukraine. Ukraine is still paying Russia for gas. I was like, but this is, you know, the human beings, you have to be at least a bit decent. Yeah. And, and that's that's it, just simple humanity and decency. And, you know, and, and you know, the one thing that was, like, I, I, I always love following what you do and listen to you and speak with you, of course, as well, because not just you call you as, as you see it, but you also can see past the the nuance, shall we say, mm. um, and and it's great. We were speaking about Vic Wild when he won the the, the, the Olympic medal. Vic Wild, huh? Yeah, and and yeah. the and I you're, you're on the show when you speak about it, and I could hear like kind of the the passion in your voice and how you were speaking about. It. And then we were also speaking about, uh, you know, Dublin. It seems like a long time ago when Dublin were doing well in Ireland, yeah. and they talk about splitting Dublin and so on. And and you rightly said, I remember when. Like we both have the same age, we remember when Dublin were not good, and yeah. one win in a decade was actually pretty decent, or two wins was brilliant. So people have very short memories, and but I think in this case, Philip, and, and this is why I respect you uh, for your work as a journalist uh, and your openness as a journalist as well. So a lot of the reporting from all sides on Ukraine has been absolutely terrible, and uh, and and and. The Russian media, you know, I watch the Russian media, I, I watch the Ukraine media, I watch, you know, well, Deutsche Welle, I watch CNA from, from Asia or CNN as well mm. from, from the States. And then trying to find a middle ground. I started to lose my mind after a while. I was like, Jesus, I mean, mm. they're, all, they're all telling me different stories. What's, what's the truth? And it's it's kind of difficult that. And I think that's going to take a long time to go away as well. But because that, that, is, that is the real challenge, Alan, because... You know, you come at this in a certain way, and part of this is to do with education and understanding what journalism is and what the purpose of it is, right? And yeah. like it, it's that I mean, the great mentor that I had at Reuters back in the very beginning was a Finnish Swedish man called Peter Stark. And Peter used to address journalism students, and he would say, "I am a Reuters journalist. I know what you tell me and what's in the public, uh, the public domain. Everything else, that's why I ask questions." And that to me was. You know, it was like there's a great humility in what he's saying. And that humility is the hardest thing to achieve in journalism, because we go in there with the arrogance of thinking that because I've been sent to this place or because I've been asked to write about this place. Therefore, what I know and what I think is more important than everything else. And that is the last thing that you are. You are nothing to do with any of those things. You are there to report on what you see. You're there to be a witness and to be a conduit for people's stories. You are not there because you are the story. or because Nobody gives a shit what I think about anything, right? (laughs) But what I do is I try to present what I see and what I hear. And I don't present that as the be-all and end-all. I simply present that as one of the thousands of pieces of the puzzle, right? And this is why I'm almost glad to hear you say how difficult you find it to piece this together for yourself because you take in these things from elsewhere because you know again i said it during the pandemic that science isn't all the answers it's just a better way of asking questions and that really is the same thing for journalism when it comes to situations like this because no more than our own uh, situation in northern ireland for so many years it's so difficult to explain because it's so complex and there are no simple answers to these things and i don't want people tuning into this podcast and listening oh here comes alan he's going to give 
in inverted commas, the Russian side. No, no. <laughs> this is one man in Moscow who knows the lay of the land there and, you know, to give a different perspective. And the whole idea that there is a right and a wrong is just the moment you start looking for that is the moment that you're sort of doomed to fail on this front, really. That's it. I, I, I agree with you. I, mean, you know, I, I was still am blessed. I mean, with, with Capitalist, but when we're on the, the radio, I mean, we were on the radio and it was like you know, the biggest radio show, like talk radio show in Russia. We had, And it was in English, which was like yeah. huge. And we got yourself from Reuters on. We had Dan Rowe from BBC, head of BBC uh, Sport on. We had Tarek Panja from New York Times on. New York Times, yeah. Times as well, a couple of times as well. We journalists from France, like mainstream, some of them state broadcasting people who are on. No one, not one person had ever turned their face from me or, you know, uh, and this over years now, this is even when, you know, I, you know, journalists who, you know, for example, I, I, a friend of mine who was working with Russia Today, um, he's, 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 now, he's back in, in, in the UK now, and he said when he was trying to get, he's working in sports report, and he said he was trying to get someone to comment to some, nobody would come on. Mm. So, and I think we're, like, they they branded a Capital FM state affiliates on Zipper Chief. I mean, and the, the laugh that we had within our production crew, <laughs> that was so funny. It's like, who would, what state won't be fit, affiliated with us? <laughs> you know, we're, we're so like, you know, we, we, we slammed Russia. We, we, we got people on to, uh, who would have a view on Russia. Now, when they came on, they were, they, they tempered them. We, we discussed things and said, well, why, why do you see this? They tell us, and we, you know, because they would know that, we're not going to sort of talk around what should we talk about this is you know I've, I've from the very start this this war should never have happened it should never have happened I, and I, with, with Tony Groves we're saying that they should just have peace get the UN in make mm. a peace line speak with the people you, you know people have to talk mm. and and I always go back and we were saying like your experience you know coming to Reuters I, I had a moment in 2000 and it would be 2015 uh, in the Verona State University, I was living and working in Verona, and um, the Irish ambassador at the time, Owen O'Leary, came down to speak to do a visit of Verona, and I was asked to help mm. to set stuff up for him and to meet him as well, because um, I was kind of a guy in the ground. So I did, and I and I get warnings. Look, we've had a huge influx since since summer, especially especially uh, <clears throat> from Ukraine. I mean, we're saying Donbass at all. We're saying Donbass. I was in Ukraine. Um, at the time, a lot of refugees have come in. They're very, very scared. They're very angry. And they're questioning why the EU has turned their face away. Now, the EU at the time were saying, talking about Azov, and they're talking like a, that these kind of Nazi battalions, neo Nazi battalions, like, yeah, but you know, you have to do more than just words. You'd say, okay, get the people to sit down and talk, use words, not just speak mm-hmm. them. And uh, only really came down and he, I warned him, I warned himself and uh, the third secretary, Mark, Mark Barton, a good GA man from Tyrone Stock, who actually helped set up the, the Moscow Shamrocks. And uh, he was there and Marie and the interpreter, they sat down and I said, look, be very careful. They're lying in wait. I said, and they're going to use this, whatever you say, they're going to turn to get you, but the EU not helping mm. people getting bombed out of their houses. And he's like, I'll be good. And he he, he's, he he had the one line, he stuck to it. He said, look, he said, we've we seen it in Ireland because his whole lecture was about, which is amazing, 
which was like very inflammatory in a way, but how Ireland from the 1840s, the population had fallen until I think it was the late 1980s or early 1990s. And it started to go up. And when he showed it in graph form, statistical, the whole lot, I was mesmerized. I was like, this is brilliant. Mm. <clears throat> I was there with a couple of colleagues. Um, and then the question started coming up, why, why did it help? He goes, look, he said, we the same in, in, in Ireland. I didn't say Northern Ireland, I said in Ireland. He said, the same in Ireland. We said, people have to sit down and talk. That's the only way wars are won. Mm. People have to sit down and talk. He said, you have to talk. Now, of course, the people who were in, and they were genuinely from, from the areas of Donbass or from Ukraine, um, some of them were, there's one guy who, who was just a local journalist, but there were other ones who were genuinely there who came in to make their own protest. He spoke the same way with them all. Mm. And people respected him for that. And I think that's what needs to be done. It's just that people need to speak. If we're going further and further away from it, and and I, I always, it is the same with, with, with vaccines as well. Uh, we can't blame governments. Um, we, you know, I'd always want to give the Irish government a good kick every so often for things they do. Like, I mean, for, mm. you know, when I went to home a couple years ago for, for my uncle's funeral, very, very close to them, I wanted to go home, but if I went home, I'd have to stay for 10 days in isolation mm. in a hotel. And I think, and, uh, you know, but if I give a, you know, a, a COVID negative test, I'd win. Not only have to do that, but my son was going home in 2020. Send him home for the summer. M was set up where it's all paid for, organized. And then they changed the, um, literally, the week before he's coming over, they changed the, the requirements to enter Ireland. Uh, at the same time, we know that like people were you know, flying through Ireland, flying into Ireland. I, I knew one girl who, Moscow Shamrock player, who actually played in the World Games for us three years ago, mm. or four years ago now. <clears throat> um, and she flew into Ireland. She was meant to quarantine for 10 days. She said, oh, I will. And then she just wandered around Ireland, you know, <laughs> go drinking beer, listen to, to trad music. She's a step dancer. She she loves that. But at the same yeah. time, I was like, you know, and in many ways, I blame the media for not holding people to account or mm. for just being afraid to hold people to account. Or you just tell the truth yeah. and let people decide. If you just give them the facts, like, this is this is what it is. You don't need to try and balance it. Say, this is what's happening. Mm. Um and be open to it and, and do your own research and you know with uh, I, I had a terrible argument someone was saying that uh, in our, well no it's going, it turned into an argument but we both laughed and uh, body should have pointed and, and what I just said was look you know person was very much anti-vax and same thing that I was a sellout um, mm. and I said look I got vaccinated because of two things one I wanted to keep my job and secondly because I was asked to do as the head of an apartment with you know 15 people there and people were like terrified of getting the vaccine and I said if I get it they'll get it um but also knowing sneakily knowing that I was getting it was at the because of coming back it was the uh Sputnik light so it was only a one shot mm. so uh and I knew that's all it was but you know and it's like oh that, that I you know I, I was a sellout that I should have like, bought in and all that and I say well look the great thing is now, myself and Bill Gates from first name terms. So, <laughs> <laughs> as soon as that George Soros check cleared, I was grabbed. <laughs> oh, that's, and, I, and, and, I, and I get to say, episode of now, and that's what annoyed me. But when you see someone like, for example, someone reporting said, like, you, you point out, no, oh, that's actually a different city, or that's wrong, or actually that didn't happen, or this is what the person said. Mm. Um, 
there's such backlash from that. I mean, come on. Like, I mean, I got it when it was the bombing of maternity hospital. When the girl said it, like, she, I watched her interview right afterwards. And she said, but it, it, it wasn't, there was no airplanes. The Russians said no, so no airplanes. Even the Ukrainians said no, no, there was no airplanes. We didn't know how it was like a, a rocket came in or whatever. And the whole thing was misrepresented. And I remember I unwisely tweeted, I was like, no, I said, this, this girl, this is what she said. I didn't, so delete your tweets quick because you're going to get burned on this. I was like, but no, 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 I watched her interview. But suddenly the interview is gone. But then a couple of months later, after I'd been, you know, given the kick, and a couple of months later, she gives an interview. Because she's back in Russia mm. and she gives an issue telling, basically confirm what I'd said, she'd said the first time when she spoke with AP News. Well, well, Ukraine and AP News. It's like, oh God. So it's like, you know, it's like, <laughs> I always have jokes like if, if I'm a if I'm a Putinist, I'm not getting paid well enough because <laughs> I, I, I don't, that's the thing, I don't like being called like, oh, you know, like, oh, I'm doing the Kremlin's work. It's like, no, no, actually, uh, the Kremlin would not want, you know, I, I should be already sitting in the in, in the cellars in Lubyanka getting yeah. beaten up by KGB officers or something because, like, they shouldn't be liking what I'm saying because I'm, you know, I'm about, like, respect for for LGBT. I think that, that you know, and then point out what needs to be done. But as director of the college here, um, there was a moment when uh, we, we were publishing a, a student doc, Organized publishing a student, uh, well, a magazine, so to say, and um, we we put in stuff that was completely uh, very uh, silly example. But I just tell you because this people would be kind of confused and going, "Is that for real?" No, this is for real. So, <clears throat> um, we were publishing it. We, we had it. We put in one article that uh, discussed with the students. So it was, it, all the students, the students did it themselves. And they'll come to me as the chief editor and say, Look, what will we do? And so, so okay, so we want to speak with they want to speak with bullying. So it's probably bullying. And then when they put in where they can go to get help to speak with a, a, a like a hotline, to speak mm-hmm. with a psychologist. And I'd already been battling the or with the university, which we were part of. We need another psychologist because the one we who were who was with us, um, who's also a gay footballer who played in the world games in Ireland, she's a Shamrock's player, mm-hmm. uh, she was overworked, you know. And yeah. The, the pushback that came from the head of our psychological psych, psychology faculty was the more psychologists to have, the more psychological problems would be there. And these kids, they just need to sh- like stay quiet and do nothing. Because yeah. summer previous, I was sitting in Budapest uh, at, a, at a meeting with uh, Uypest. And the next day I was coming out, uh, I said, I get in a hotel, sat in have a cup of coffee. I got a call from my deputy in the college said, like the, a student who had never been in our in our college. She had um, signed up, but had spent the year in uh, a mental hospital or to 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 get help. She had some she had some major issues. Had committed suicide, and we just found it. But she just was down with her. They sent her down to the sea to try and you know, get some fresh air. She they climbed from the building and jumped off and killed herself. And <clears throat> at the first, uh, we called the Linnaeus. It's kind of like the wherever it lines up in the yard uh, for the college. So the kids are like from 15 to 21 years of age. So uh, they, they they all lined up. And I, and I had said, I want to not have a minute silence, or, or, but just to remember her and just to say, if you have issues, if you need to talk with somebody, talk with somebody. And I was forbidden from saying it. I was forbidden. So went from like publishing the, the, the magazine, asked me, but I couldn't say 
publicly. Um, so we did was just, we we did a special issue uh, of the of the magazine saying, if you need help, this is where you go. And do not suffer in silence. We'd also discussed which, if you read the the Russian law about uh, LGBT or um, the, the, that whole anti-propaganda law, it's it's an absolute mess. Mm. Um, it's what's perceived to be. So it's it's a complete sort of disgrace of a law. Uh, but when when we had the uh, one issue of the uh, magazine came out, it was called The Voice uh, magazine. We had an, an English one, an English one in Russian. So the exact same content, one English one in Russian. And when it came out, uh, we we had a there's this mini scandal where we we spoken about that. Uh, you know, one we had one. Uh, in the same issue, we had about Greta Thunberg and the climate crisis. But one of our main courses in the in the college was about ecology and mm. ecosystems, and it was about uh, LGBT rights and about how people should be free to love who they want to love. Mm. And the university scandal. The, the, the head of the university rector phoned me and she said, um, "You realise that like you could be in trouble over." I was like, "Well." I said I did nothing. We did nothing wrong. Kids told the truth, and that's what they want to speak. And that's it. Mm-hmm. I know. So, you know, it was a sorry. So I, I wandered away a little bit with that. So, mm-hmm. yeah, and so, I, and on that, like, well, it's my own future, Russia. It might not be that long if I keep doing mad things like this, because eventually, a cat only has nine lives. <laughs> I've probably used up about ten of mine. So. <laughs> exactly. Uh, one of these days. But again, it's it is important to give that sort of idea because I remember somebody sent me a tweet once, and they were going, "Oh, you know, Alan saying this, Alan saying that." I was going. Hang on a second. I've known Alan long enough now to know that there's something more behind that. I can't even remember what it was, you know. And there, there is. I mean, I think if one this conversation has illustrated one thing, it is that there's a depth and there's a level of nuance that. And I'm really sorry if you find it really difficult <laughs> to go through it and to put up with it and that kind of thing. But that's the kind of thing that you need to be, you know, the kind of attention you need to be paying. And indeed, it's why we brought you on the Global Gale yeah. podcast, Alan Moore. Thanks so much for talking to me. Thank you, Phil. Thank you very, very much. It was an honour. There you go. That was Alan Moore there talking to me from Moscow. And you know the way I do like to drop in a little funny clip and that kind of thing at the end of these things just to lighten things up a bit. I'm not going to do that there because war is nothing that we should be joking about. But I'm delighted with Alan that uh, delighted that he took the time to come on and to talk to us. Listen, I'm going to let you go because I've been uh, an hour and 18 minutes just ticked up over there. My God, this is turning into fucking Joe Rogan here. Joe Rogan on turf. Um, but one thing I want to say before I do go is ladies, I'm ad- addressing you directly, right? I'm always looking for, for women to come on the podcast to talk about what they're doing i've mentioned it before and i mentioned it now again i've uh, sent a few messages to people i'm that creepy fella sliding into dms but rather than looking for somebody's phone number i'm looking for them to come onto the podcast to talk about what they're doing abroad uh, there's one lady down below in brisbane in australia that i'm hoping uh, to get on the podcast to talk about what she's doing down there i'm not going to tell you what it is in case i don't get her but if there is anybody out there who's doing something in academia or in sport or in business or with their community please do get in touch and I'll just fire you straight on there because uh, we want to keep this as equal as possible. We want to get the interesting women out there and your stories are interesting. Believe me, we'll get you on there to tell them. Listen, I shall leave you alone for the week, right? Uh, if you do have a chance, right, keep an eye on the feed. Uh, subscribe to the Armanus.com podcast feed. That's where everything shows up. And on Monday... 
uh, this coming Monday now at 7 o'clock Central European time whatever that might be uh, in the other parts of the world there's going to be a fascinating interview coming up I hope and it's it's also to do with sport but we do actually have a female interviewee coming up on the Irish in Sweden podcast so uh, give that one a listen as well and as I say if you can like if you can subscribe if you can go to patreon.com ourman in Stockholm and throw in a few bob every month that's even even better but uh, listen I've taken up enough of your time thank you very much indeed for your time it's magnificent to know that you're all going to be listening to the podcast week in week out I will be back to you again next week with another one in the meantime look after yourselves and look after one another and sure i'll talk to you very very soon indeed